Let us continue to listen for the word of God from the second reading, the Acts of the Apostles. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything was owned, was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This ends the reading of scripture. So welcome, welcome to Eastertide, the liturgical time following the resurrection of Christ, leading up to Pentecost, that day of spirit-filled, life-propelling the disciples into the world as the body of Christ. 2,000 years ago, the disciples were still hiding out, still trying to figure out what the empty tomb meant. They were bickering, I imagine, about what the women had seen or not seen, about how crazy they were. Some held out hope that Jesus was coming back. Others doubted. Some talked about Jesus as though he were completely different from the rabbi that they had followed, listened to in the temple, seen arrested. They said he could pass through locked doors. Some were so ashamed that they had run away in fear that they found it hard to listen to the women who had stayed had watched Jesus die, crucified on a cross. The horror of it all stunned them into silence, into fear. But still, they clung to one another. They tried to do that much, take that step toward loving one another, the command that Jesus had repeated so often the last week he was their teacher. Sometimes we want to imagine that the first disciples were smarter and braver and more faithful than we are. The gospel writers make it pretty clear that they were not. The disciples were human, just as we are. So what gave them hope during that first month after Jesus' death and the empty tomb? When Luke came to write his good news about the early days of the church, he painted this wonderful picture of the common life they observed 
Luke tells us of how the disciples loved one another, selling their property, sharing all they had with one another as they waited for what we have come to call the second coming. In the earliest days of Jesus' followers were sure that next week they would see Jesus descending on the clouds in the sky, returning to inaugurate the kingdom of God, quite literally. They were eager to be found waiting for his arrival, all together, praying and serving one another. I can imagine some of them washing one another's feet. Others would be sharing bread and cup. Others would be caring for the sick, healing the blind, housing the widows and orphans. They were super-Christians. Whatever really happened, in memory, there was one brief, shining Camelot moment when perfection held, or so Luke wrote, and we read, and some followers of Christ to this day seek to emulate. Passages such as this one in Acts have inspired more than one commune to make plans and give it a try. Those who stay the course in such an endeavor dig deeper into the scriptures, into the words of the prophets like Isaiah, a prophet whose words inspired Jesus. The first part of this book of Isaiah contains the words of a prophet who lived in Jerusalem just before the Babylonians swept down upon them and took the elite off to exile far from their temple, their land of promise. Isaiah could see it coming. He preached against the divisions between the rich and the poor. Can you imagine anybody preaching about that? The fact that some had two houses and others had no shelter at all. More than that, Isaiah had visions of a time when all tears would be wiped away and a feast of rich food would be provided for all the people, all of them, on God's holy mountain. Isaiah's vision included the words, God will swallow up death forever. What did the disciples make of those words? What do we? Paul's letters to the early congregations of Christian disciples insist that trusting the resurrection to be true is essential to our faith. Our scriptures also tell us that only those who already believed in Jesus saw him after the empty tomb. They also tell us that 40 days after Easter, Jesus ascended into heaven, never to be seen on earth again until that second coming we still wait for. 
Our faith rests on our trust and experiences we never see or touch. And yet, as the disciples gathered together, perhaps behind locked doors, trembling in fear, they walked the walk, loving one another as best they knew how. They prayed and told stories about Jesus, remembering everything he had said and done, or at least bits and bobs of it, savoring it. They provided one another with a feast of rich food, wiped one another's tears away, and threw off the shroud that is cast over all people. They waited together, and somehow together, as they shared the bread and the cup, remembering Christ Jesus, joy animated the whole circle a joy that the walls could not contain. Eastertide joy is different from Christmas joy, that time of birth and unlimited possibilities. Eastertide joy knows that death and suffering are real. And yet, not the final chapter. Eastertide joy insists on announcing a bolder vision beyond the hope of only one part of the human family. Eastertide joy belongs to all the world, indeed, to the cosmos. Such joy speaks to our condition all these centuries later, when we live in an expanded universe and know so much more about the suffering of all the countries on earth. We are tempted in this time to deep despair. The risen Christ announces the victory of love over hate. Much has been written this past week about Martin Luther King, Jr. For a time, he served as a surrogate messiah for many of his country's peoples, and indeed those living around the world. I have seen posters carrying his image in both Bolivia and in Palestine. They probably can be seen wherever liberation is sought. King wrote about having to come to terms with the inevitability of his own death, to get past that fear in order to do his work, the work God called him to do. Michael Eric Dyson wrote in last week's paper, King saw faith as a tool for change, a constant source of inspiration to remake the world 
in the just and redemptive image of God. On this holy day, instead of shrinking into the safety of faith, we should, as Dr. King did, bear the burdens of the less fortunate and rise again to serve humanity. From the pages of the Bible, the words of Isaiah and Luke in Acts, we can take images to inspire our response to the challenge of resurrection. As our weekly communion liturgy reminds us, we are the body of Christ, alive in the world today, not alone, but as one congregation amongst millions of others, all called to follow beyond fear into ministry. The followers of Jesus from the very first week have struggled to understand the balance between waiting and hoping, being and doing. Some are called in specific ways to live out their Easter joy, but all are called to love one another and keep the circle unbroken. As we feed the hungry, march against injustice, visit those in prison, comfort those who mourn, we are living Easter joy. As we sit in meditation, pray for those in pain, sing and chant words of faith, we are living Easter joy. As we discern the steps ahead for our common life as members of the council, we are living Easter joy. In the dark times when our trust is threatened by too many reports of suffering in our world, let us remember the earliest disciples, Mary Magdalene and Peter, the other Mary, John and Andrew, Thomas and Philip, hiding out but compelled by the love of Jesus to hold on just a little longer, just as Jesus the Christ appeared in their midst, there are times here, in this circle, when the real presence of Christ becomes radiant. But never to keep us here, always to send us forth, emboldened to love our neighbors one more weak. By doing that, we make it true. Love is stronger than death. It's stronger than hate. May it be so. Amen.